Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right. You're listening to Melissa Cantrola here on Truth Be Told Radio. And I'm starting off with appropriately named, In the Beginning, God Created. And that is featuring Dr. Vodi Bachman. So let's get started with that. This morning, it was my responsibility as we scheduled this out to break through Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 through Genesis chapter 1 and verse 25 to look at those six days of creation. Well, small problem. I'm not going to make it past verse 2 this morning. We will examine Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we will answer a very simple question. A question, by the way, that I just found out was the number one Google search of 2007. Google always puts out information about its searches, you know, or the top celebrities searched for and all this sort of thing. And, you know, and everybody goes and looks to see if, if, if they won, uh, you know, that last year. And, and um, none, of you, none of you won last year for the most searched celebrity. They also put out the number one who is search. And in 2007, the number one who is search on Google was who is God. Number one search for all of 2007, who is God? Inquiring minds want to know, who is God? We are unclear about who God is. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, not at all unclear about who God is. There is a clear and precise proclamation of God in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There is not a proof of God in Genesis 1. That's not the goal of the writer of Genesis, to prove the existence of God. If you are looking to proof of the existence of God, well, you, you, you need to go to, to Anselm and others to find philosophical proofs of the existence of God. The writer of the Pentateuch is not concerned with proving to anyone that God exists. The writer of the Pentateuch assumes that God exists and that it is foolish to assume anything other than the fact that God exists. The writer of the Pentateuch is far too intelligent to assume that this world is somehow a cosmic accident. So you will find no proof. The cosmological argument for the existence of God, not present in Genesis 1. The teleological argument for the existence of God, not present in Genesis chapter 1. You will not find the moral argument for the existence of God in Genesis chapter 1. You will find the proclamation of the existence of God in Genesis chapter 1. And that proclamation of God consists in the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. The world is here, and as the psalmist says, day by day issues forth its speech, and it proclaims to us its creator. That's what Genesis 1, 1 and 2 is concerned with, answering that question, not is there a God, but answering the question, who is God? By the way, this is a very pertinent question in our day, and I want to set this out for you at the onset. This question of who is God, viewed from the perspective of cosmogony. <laughs> I don't you just love that. Cosmology, cosmogony, all these sort of words. Our understanding of the universe and the way the universe is made, the way the universe exists. When you look at the question of God, there are a couple of ways to answer it from the perspective of creation. There are only a few ways to look at creation. 
three basic ways you can look at creation. Number one, the argument that matter is eternal. The material universe is eternal. That's number one. That's the first possibility, that, that matter and, and, and all of the substance that makes up this, this me and this table and the tablecloth and those chairs, all of those elements, they are eternal. They have always existed. That's one line of argumentation. They've existed in different forms, and perhaps, you know, there are those who argue that, you know, that there was once this small, dense ball of matter. And Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D. R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M TruthBeToldRadio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord, and they said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. He has ears to hear the word of God. Let them hear. Let's pray. Father, indeed, our souls are thrilled when we hear accounts such as these of your visitation upon the early church with the power of the Holy Spirit that changed these fearful people into people of great boldness. We pray that you would do that same work in our souls in this day. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that it was George Bernard Shaw who invented the idea of the declension of personal adjectives. Now, if you remember your grammar from elementary school, 
you decline nouns and not personal adjectives. But what Shaw had in mind with the declension of personal adjectives was something like that. Here's the way it works. I am confident. You are cocky. And he is arrogant. That's the way we decline personal adjectives. Another way to do it would be like this. I am bold. You are brash. And she is foolhardy. Because that's the way, depending on how we're looking at things, we use adjectives to describe people. When we describe ourselves, we tend to choose an adjective that sounds virtuous. But when the same property is manifested in somebody else, we tend to diminish the virtue of it. And that's what Shaw had in mind. But if we've been paying attention to the last weeks in our study of the book of Acts in the early church, the adjective that comes over and over and over through the pages has to do with the boldness of Peter and John and the early church. And when the New Testament speaks of the quality of boldness, it is describing an attribute of virtue, an attribute that is to mark the life of the church in every generation. Well, let's look now to the text as we see it working out here in Acts 4. Being let go, that is, after their overnight imprisonment, after the kangaroo trial in front of the Supreme Court of Israel, where Peter and John were commanded no more speak in the name of Jesus, to which they responded saying, whether it be right to obey God or man, you be the judge. And they made it manifest that they were not going to submit to this rule. And out of fear of the people, the Sanhedrin let John and Peter go. And so here we're looking at what happened afterwards. And being let go, they went to their own companions. They came back to the early church, and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And so when they heard that, all of them, this whole body of Christian people in the first century, raised their voice to God with one accord, and they said, Lord, you are God. What could be more obvious than that? And why were they doing it? They were saying, what we've just experienced before the highest court of the land, we've been before the highest authority that this world can say to us, but we are saying now in our prayer, acknowledging you, O God, are the Lord. And it's to you that we bow in adoration and submit to your authority. You he says, Lord, you are God, and you are the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Then notice what happens next. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The king of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Immediately in the midst of their prayer, they are reminded of the word of God. The word of God that came to Israel through the lips or the pen of David in the second psalm. And if you're familiar with Psalm 2, it begins with a question. Why do the nations roar? Why do the heathen rage and the kings of the world take counsel together and set themselves against the Lord and against his Messiah? against the Lord's anointed? That's the question. And what is being described in Psalm 2 is a summit meeting of the most powerful rulers in the world where those who refuse to submit to the dominion of God and to the reign of God 
who will not have God reign over them, saying, let's cast his bonds asunder. Let's break loose from his reign. This was separation of state from God with a vengeance in antiquity. And this is what David predicted, that there would be an international conspiracy, not limited to one country or to one group, but the rulers from all over the world would assemble together in defiance against the lordship of God Almighty and against his anointed son. When David describes this scene of this summit meeting of the enemies of God, we are told that the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. He looks at the assembly of all of the power and the might of the kings of this world as they gather together and they aim their bombs, their arrows, their guns, their tanks at God and against Christ. And God looks down from heaven. (laughs) What is this? He's amused at first with the power and the strength of the kings of this world. And he makes fun of them. The Lord will have them in derision, he said, but only for a moment, because then God's amusement, the psalmist tells us, turns to wrath. And he warns the kings of the world that I will strike their knees with a rod of iron. I will take their armies, I will take their weapons, and I will destroy them like a potter's jar is smashed against the ground. The latest generation of tanks will be scooped up by God in his hand, and he'll turn it over and crush it against the ground into smithereens. Then he warns them, kiss the sun. S-O-N, kiss the sun, kiss my son, lest he becomes angry and you perish in the way. John and Peter go back to the people of God, tell them what happened. And they begin to praise God, God, you are God. You are the one who made the heavens and earth. And now we know what David was talking about, about the rulers of this world taking counsel together. And listen to what he says. For truly your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, and all of them were gathered together to do whatever they wanted to do against him. That's not what it says. So they gathered together in an unholy alliance to do whatever your hand, O God, to do whatever your purpose determined beforehand to be done. You see, the early church had no debates about Calvinism and Arminianism. There wasn't an Arminian to be found in the early church. Every Christian believed in the sovereignty of God, and they believed in it absolutely. They never negotiated the sovereignty of God because Jesus revealed exactly who God is and the power of the Almighty against all of the machinations of the people of this world. And so the early church said, all this power that we've seen by the Romans and and the Gentiles and the Sanhedrin, nothing. Just a few weeks ago, your son was delivered into the hands of these people to be executed by your hand. And by your determinate purpose and counsel from the beginning of the world. When last time we had the Lord's Supper, I read to you from Isaiah 53, where in that passage on the suffering servant of Israel, what does the text say? And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Our Lord Jesus would not have suffered a scratch simply by the conspiracy of human enemies against him, were it not for the determinate counsel of the Father 
who ordained from all eternity that the Son should suffer at the hands of these wicked men for your sake and for my sake. And so they understood that in the drama of redemption, despite all of the antagonistic actions of those in this world, God was still sovereign. God was still in control of all of this. And he said, now, Lord, look on their threats. Look on these threats that these same kings and rulers are breathing out against us. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And a moment later we read, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the word of God with boldness, 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 boldness. Can't you see the character of the first century Christian church was marked over and over and over again of unparalleled boldness. And yet, just a matter of weeks before this moment, when the lanterns were appearing in the Garden of Gethsemane as the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, his disciples fled in panic. At Calvary, when Christ was being executed, yes, there was John, yes, there was Mary, but where were the rest of them? Peter huddling over there in the corner, cursing, denying that he ever even met Jesus. Boldness? In the book of Revelation, when it speaks of the final judgment of God, he talks about those whom he will send into the lake of fire, the murderers, the adulterers, and so on. What's the first group that goes into the lake of fire? The cowards. If anything marks the church at the beginning of the 21st century, it's cowardliness. If anything that describes the difference between us and the first century church is our lack of boldness. But yet we see this sudden transformation. You know, just again, a few days before that, they're up in the upper room, hiding, cowering, terrified, locking the doors for fear of the Jews. And now they're standing up against the highest authority in the land, fearlessly. What happened? Two things. The resurrection and Pentecost. The resurrection galvanized the face of the early church. When they saw the risen Christ, when they saw his victory over death and over his enemies, when he burst alive out of the tomb, a faith was born in the breasts of the apostles and the disciples that the whole world could not extinguish. And adding to the power of that faith was the power of Pentecost in which God the Holy Ghost came upon them and they began to proclaim the word of God fearlessly into the whole world. I told the people at the 8 o'clock service this past week, Jack Parr died. And I remembered when they announced his death, an experience I had when I was a sophomore in college. I'd only been a Christian a year. And it was announced that on the Jack Parr program, Billy Graham would be his guest. And so all of the Christians that were gathered on our campus went to the one television set in the dorm where we could watch the late-night program with Jack Parr and here came Billy Graham onto the program, and Jack Parr, in his inimitable fashion, wanted to speak frivolously and, and silly with Billy and be the comedian and say, well, oh, Billy, I guess you're coming here tonight to talk to me to try to save my soul. Uh, I guess you're trying to straighten my life out. You're probably trying to get me to repent. Billy smiled, and he said, well, Jack, have you thought about repenting? Because you know you need to. And yes, I am concerned about your soul. Because without Jesus, Jack, you're going to perish. And I'm standing there as a college kid listening to this. And I said, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Billy Graham wasn't nasty. He wasn't mean. He wasn't 
insensitive, but I'll tell you what he was, folks. He was bold before the whole nation. He wasn't going to be manipulated into being silent about the truth of Christ. Where is that boldness among us? Yes, there's a difference between being brash, being foolhardy, being obnoxious and as offensive as we possibly can be. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about being done with cowardliness and living the proclamation of the gospel with the boldness that characterizes a Christian who has been persuaded of the resurrection of Christ, of the defeat of death, that we may have the same change in us that was in these men, who from the moment they celebrated the Last Supper with Jesus went into infidelity and fearfulness. But the Christ who fed them that night was raised from the dead and raised them from their fears and turned them into valorous saints. was from Millionaire Ministries with R.C. Sproul called Holy Boldness. And now from Answers and Justice. The order of events is wrong. This is Ken Ham, editor of the helpful series, The New Answers Book. Could God have used evolution and the Big Bang to create? Well, some Christians say yes, but what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says God created Earth on day one and the sun and stars on day four. But the Big Bang says the sun and stars came millions of years before the Earth. In Genesis, we read God created the plants on day three and the sea creatures on day five. But according to evolution, life evolved first in the sea and then on the land. The Bible says birds were made on day five and land creatures on day six. Evolution has land creatures long before birds. No, creation and evolution certainly don't mix. Have questions about the truth of God's word, creation, and evolution? Find answers when you go to our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com. Comprehensive scientific research has exposed a startling reality for the ungodly. Their neglect to obey the gospel and subsequent life choices will almost certainly reduce their lifespan. Science is now pointing towards a clear connection between spirituality and longevity. Forbes, in a compelling article titled, Science Says Religion is Good for Your Health, highlights research from the Mayo Clinic affirming that religious involvement and spirituality are strongly associated with better health outcomes, including greater longevity. Pew Research adds weight to this revelation, noting that more than 80% of Americans over 75 are Christians, emphasizing the impact of religious affiliation on a longer, healthier life. Research at the Mayo Clinic report that over the past three decades, at least, 18 prospective studies have constantly shown that religiously involved individuals live longer. The Journal of Social, Psychological, and Personality Science further supports these findings, revealing that religiously affiliated people live up to nearly 10 years longer than their non-religious counterparts. But what's the secret to this extended life? The Allied Times identifies five key factors, regular exercise, healthy eating, devotion to family, a sense of purpose built around community and giving, and a spiritual life. However, the revelation doesn't stop there. Unbelievers who die younger often maintain a healthy lifestyle, love their families, and have a sense of community. The overlooked reason? Christians are more cautious about what they put into their bodies, avoiding alcohol abuse, illegal drugs, and tobacco. Alcohol-related deaths in the U.S. exceed 140,000 annually, according to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. 
Christian's absence from illegal drugs, which cause over 106,000 deaths annually, and tobacco responsible for more than 480,000 deaths each year in the U.S., is another contributing factor. Moreover, Christians avoid engaging in high-risk behaviors, such as promiscuity and homosexuality, which has contributed to the deaths of over 700,000 through AIDS in the U.S. Scientists discovered that Christians live just under 10 years longer than unbelievers. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Do you think there's life after death? No. Do you ever think about your own death? A lot, yeah. Does it scare you? It does. I'm envious of people who believe in God because I think it gives you faith to live on and to have like a purpose and know where you're going after death. We keep reincarnating until we eventually get life right. But yeah, I believe once we get the morality of life right and become good people, eventually we um, are granted the eternal peace of not having to be here on earth and our souls can roam free in the higher dimensions. Maggie, there's a difference between believing in God and having faith in God. Can you think of anyone you have faith in? Only myself. Ever flown in a plane? Yes. You trusted the pilot with your life. You didn't even see the pilot. You didn't give him a breathalyzer test to see if he'd been drinking. You just trusted your life to a complete stranger. So how much more should we trust the God who cannot lie? And that's what the Bible talks of when it speaks of having faith in God. Do you think you're a good person? Yes. How many lies have you told in your life? Probably less than 10. I think I'm a very honest person. What do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. So what are you? A liar. I, I've lied before. I've stolen. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Sure. Yeah, I have. You love your mom? I do. Did you ever use her name as a cuss word? No. Why not? Because I love her. And you respect her. Yeah. But you don't respect the God that gave you a mother because you've taken his holy name and used it as a cuss word. That's called blasphemy. Very serious. Yeah. One to go, and I appreciate your honesty with me and your patience. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Definitely. Had sex All before? the time. Yeah. Every day. You had sex before marriage? Oh, yes. So here's a quick summation of your court case on Judgment Day. You've told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, a fornicator, an adulterer at heart, and you're self-righteous, which is a sin in God's eyes, and saying you're a good person when you're not. So on Judgment Day, will you be innocent or guilty? I will be guilty, but hopefully God forgives me. I mean, I was out there gangbanging. I've been shot. I've been almost died a few times, but that wasn't the time that God, God touched me. It was, uh, I did something real bad, you know? After I did, I just felt like a sense of remorse. Like, I don't know, it, it just... Did you shoot someone? I, I'm not going to say what I did. Guilt, remorse, um... The power of the conscience, isn't it? Yeah, that, and, and I asked him for forgiveness. And when I did that, I just felt a warm feeling of comfort, all the, the remorse, the guilt, everything. I felt like God touched me and, and forgave me. Have you ever heard the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death? It's the same God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge who looks at a criminal who's committed murder, but he keeps saying, I'm a good person. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what you've earned. And Maggie's sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row. That's why you'll die. And your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. So if you're guilty on Judgment Day, would you go to heaven or hell? I guess hell. Well, does that concern you? Somewhat. It horrifies me. I've just met you, but I love you. You're a human being. I don't want you to end up in hell. I don't either. Do you know what God did for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? Jesus died for our sins. Now, what does that mean? Here you are, under God's wrath, heading for hell. How can Jesus dying on the cross help you in your dilemma? I'm not sure. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said, it is finished just before he died. He was saying, paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone pays those fines, even though you're guilty. See, a lot of fines here, but someone's paid and you can leave, and it's legal. Well, God can legally take that death sentence off you and let you live forever, all because Jesus paid the fine on that cross and rose again on the third day. And all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent of your sins, turn from them, and trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. If you were on a plane 10,000 feet up and you had to jump, why would you put on a parachute? To help 
save my life? Yes, you don't want to die, and your motivation is fear. And that fear is your friend, not your enemy. It's doing your favor. It's making you put on a parachute. And because I love you, I've tried to put the fear of God in you today, hoping you'll see that fear as your friend, not your enemy, because it'll make you serious with the God that gave you life. It'll make you think about eternity and where you're going to spend forever. And it'll bring you to the foot of the cross where you'll find everlasting life. Is this making sense? Oh, yeah. You want to think about what we talked about? I, I will. Seriously? I, I will, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm trying to live a, a more, I'm trying to live a good moral life every day. Well, you can't do it because of the power of lust. We're like, we're like moths to a flame, and what you need is a new heart with new desires. And the moment you repent, put your faith in Christ, God says, I'll take your heart and give you a new heart that loves to do that which is right. And that'll be your own personal miracle. You'll be born again. You'll know what I'm saying is true because you've experienced the power of God in your own life where he transforms you from someone who loves that which is wrong to someone that loves that which is right. And you'll have the knowledge you have everlasting life. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It does. So when are you going to repent and put your faith in Jesus? Starting now. So you're going to think about what we talked about? I will think about this moment for the rest of my life. That's wonderful. So when are you going to repent and put your faith in Jesus? I'm not fully convinced yet. <laughs> I think um, I'm just very doubtful, very untrusting. When I was younger, I would always pray to a God. And I think a lot of stuff hasn't gone my way. And I think my whole life I've been told that if that happens, there really is no God. Our minds are incredibly sinful. We're very selfish by nature. God gave us life, and we treat him like a divine butler, and he's supposed to come running when we click our fingers. And the Bible says he's nothing like that. It says his wrath abides on us. He's the judge of the universe. You have eyes because God gave you eyes. You can see because he gave you the gift of eyesight. You can taste good food because he gave you taste buds. You can think clearly because God gave you a brain. You can listen to good music and hear the birds in the morning because God gave you the ability to hear. He put blood in your veins. He breathed life into your body. And have you ever thanked him for life from your heart? I haven't. Why does he do good for us? God is love, and evidence of his love is the blueness of the, the warmth of the sun. All these things have been made for the benefit of man. It didn't happen because of an explosion in space. And so all around us we see the evidence of his love, and he proved his love by Jesus dying on the cross. The Bible says God commanded his love toward us and that while we get sinners, Christ died for us. So we don't deserve as gift of everlasting life. So whatever you do, don't think about it too long because every day 150,000 people die. A lot of young people. Every year, 54 million are swallowed by this thing called death. And I don't want that to happen to you. And examine my tone. Why am I speaking to you like this? Why have I got such passion in my voice? It's because I really do care about you and where you spend eternity, and I really know what I'm saying is true, the gospel truth. I wouldn't lie to you about something so serious. So will you think about this with a sense of seriousness? I will. Can I give you a book I've written called Volatile? I see you wearing a T-shirt. Do you believe what it says? Um, I have no idea what it says, actually. <laughs> it says crystal ball readings. It's the first thing I saw when I saw you. Only God knows the future. Human beings don't. We don't even know what the weather's going to be tomorrow. We just take a guess, an estimated guess. But 2,500 years ago, God named the nations that would attack Israel in the last days. He actually gave us the names of the nations. 2,500 years ago, which shows us the Bible is inspired by God, that it's his word, it's got his fingerprint all over it, and it'll give you more faith in God's word so you can read it with confidence. If it is his word, then it's promise of everlasting life is true, and that means you can have hope in your death. And this is the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament. And this is a little booklet called Save Yourself from Pain, which is Principles of Christian Growth. Are you sorry for your sin? Yeah, I am. Can I pray with you? Sure. Father, pray for Stefan that this day he'll truly repent, that you'll grant him repentance, and he'll be truly sorry for his sins. And may today he see what you did through the cross, that you commanded your love towards him by Jesus dying in his place. And this day may he be born again, have his sins washed away and be granted everlasting life, all because of your wonderful grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stefan, do you have a Bible at home? I believe so. I haven't opened it up in 
Who knows how long? Yeah, God knows how long. <laughs> it's lovely to to you. I'm going to give you a Gospel of John, a book I've written called Volatile. I love that. And there's two two five dollar in and out cards for you. Oh no way! Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. I Very welcome. You like in and out? Nice to meet you, Stefan. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. Okay. Okay. God bless. Thank you, sir. Bye bye. Christians live longer than non-Christians because we fear God, so we don't take risks with our bodies. We could drink alcohol if we wanted to, but we know it's dumb. We don't smoke cigarettes because it's dumb to breathe burning fumes into your lungs. We don't drink and drive. We don't take risks with our body because everything we do is done in respect to God's smile or his frown. Being a Christian has great advantages not only in this life but also in the next. And here's a great way to get people thinking about the next life. Give them the booklet, Science Says Christians Live Longer Than Unbelievers. Who's not going to read this? You can get these individually in bulk at livingwaters.com. Death for millions of years? This is Ken Ham, inviting you to visit the Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. This week, we're seeing that creation and evolution don't mix. And here's a big reason why. According to evolution, death has always been around. As long as there's been life, there's been death. Actually, it's only because of millions of years of death that we evolved. You can't separate evolution and death. But the Bible teaches that God created a perfect world and that death is the punishment for sin. Adam and Eve sinned against God and brought death into creation. When Christians add evolution into the Bible, they're adding millions of years of death and disease before sin. Evolution and the Bible absolutely contradict each other. Explore the history in God's Word when you visit our world-class creation museum in northern Kentucky. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com. Now, I want to deal with something that I've seen a lot of in the comments of my videos, and it's people making the claim that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Now, I'm not going to get into why it's, that's wrong, okay? It's obviously wrong. But I want to let R.C. Sproul deal with that later on in the clip. What I'd like to hone in on is the heretical ideology regarding the accountability of the sinner. Whoever came up with that phrase, God hates the sin and loves the sinner, was simply attempting to give the sinner a scapegoat. Because if God hates my sin and not me, the sinner, it's as if my sin is this exterior being that's outside of my control. And that erroneous belief essentially gets the sinner off the hook. If you believe this, repent, because that train of thought might send you to hell. When everyone is talking about the love of God and God loves me just as I am, how would you respond? The kingdom of God is not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Uh, I think there are a few things more dangerous than preachers out there preaching that God loves everybody unconditionally. Because the message that is heard by the people who hear that is, there are no conditions. I can continue to live just as I'm living in full rebellion against God. And I have nothing to worry about because there aren't any conditions that I have to meet. God loves me unconditionally. I don't have to repent. I don't have to come to Jesus. I don't have to leave my life of sin. Uh, no conditions, no strings attached. God loves me just the way I am. He's glad that I turned out so nicely and so on. But there is a sense. I've written a book on the love of God, and where I talk about the three ways in which theologians speak about the love of God, God's love of benevolence, where God has a good will towards everybody, believers and non-believers, beneficent love of God. God gives benefits to people, whether they're believers or not believers. The rain falls on the just as well as on the unjust. But the most important consideration is the love of complacency, not the love of smugness. But what is meant by the love of complacency is the filial love that God has for the redeemed. And that love is directed first to Christ and then to all who are in Christ, our elder brother. And that salvific love is not something that God has for everybody unconditionally. And sometimes we close our eyes to what the Bible says frequently about God's posture towards the impenitent. God, the Bible tells us, upwards the wicked. 
That's strong language. God abhors the test, the wicked who are impenitent. And then people say, well, God loves the sinner. He just hates the sin. But he doesn't send the sin to hell. He sends the sinner there. And so this is very dangerous stuff when we God loves you unconditionally. Animal carnivory. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis, Creation Museum, and Ark Encounter. All this week, we've seen that creation and evolution don't mix. And here's one final reason. In Genesis, we read that God's creation was very good. There was no death, including death by animals eating one another. You see, originally, mankind and the animals were created vegetarian. Genesis says God gave them the green plants for food. And yet we find examples in the fossil record of animals eating each other. If this fossil record is millions of years old, then for millions of years animals were eating each other, and yet God said they were vegetarian. It doesn't make sense. No, we can't add evolution to the Bible. Do you have questions about creation, evolution, and the truth of God's Word? Visit our faith-affirming website to find answers. Go to AnswersRadio.com. Genesis, chapter 12. And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land, and from your kin, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go forth to the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh, and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it happened as he drew near to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai his wife, Now behold, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and it will be when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now it happened when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well because of her, and sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels came into his possession. But Yahweh struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for myself as a wife? So now, here is your wife. Take her and go. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. 
and he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. Now Lot, who was going with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while living together, for their possessions were so abundant that they were not able to live together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were living then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Then Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Now the men of Sodom were evil and sinners, exceedingly so against Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and lived by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to Yahweh. Genesis chapter 14. And it happened in the days of Amraphel king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, Keterlaomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera king of Sodom, and with Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, and Shemeber king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Now for twelve years they had served Keterlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. So in the fourteenth year, Keterlaomer and the kings that were with him came and struck the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Amim in Sheva Kariathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and they struck all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arranged themselves for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Keterlaomer king of Elam and Tidal king of Goyim and Amraphel king of Shinar and Arioch king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who remained behind fled to the hill country. Then they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed. Now he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was dwelling by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were in a covenant with Abram. So Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, and he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318 in number, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his men against them by night, he and his servants, and struck them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Then after he came back from striking down Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. Then he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. 
and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then he gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me, but take the possessions for yourself. Then Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to Yahweh, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, so that you would not say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me as I go on being childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no seed to me, behold, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord Yahweh, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and split them into parts down the middle and laid each part opposite the other, but he did not split apart the birds. Then the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now it happened that when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now it happened that the sun had set, and it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your seed I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. It's Compromise. This is Ken Ham, author of the book called The Lie, Evolution and Millions of Years. This week, we've seen reasons from God's Word why creation and evolution don't mix. But does it really matter? Yes, you see, evolution and millions of years don't come from the Bible. They come from outside of Scripture. And then are used to reinterpret God's clear word. It's compromised with man's ideas. Think of it this way. The words of people who weren't there, who don't know everything, and frequently make mistakes, are being used to interpret the word of the one who has always been there, who knows everything, and never makes a mistake. No, we must always allow God's word to be our ultimate authority, in every area. Discover more about God's Word as our authority when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. 
question for you. Are you ever tempted to share a little something about somebody? Maybe even do it in a subtle sort of way. I'll pray for everybody. Lord, please help Helen because we all know that she can't make her monthly mortgage payment and and her husband, Ron, who's been beating the children. Please help them this day. (laughs) That's gossip packaged in a prayer. And frankly, it happens all the time. I think gossip is the absolute opposite of humility. What do I have to gain in tearing down somebody with a gossip better of me? You're going to think, oh, I'm not like the person I just slandered. Why? A gossip is so nasty because it is of the flesh and not of the spirit hard to imagine the Holy Spirit gossiping about anyone. We're supposed to be like him, led by him, and he never gossips. Am I going to draw near to God? Let him control me. Or am I going to give in to the desires of the flesh? The consequences of gossip are more devastating than the sensational sin. Gossip is nasty. Why? Because it hurts somebody else a lot. Now, I can punch you in the nose, and that's going to smart. Okay, not a lot, because, well, I don't know if I told you, but I could bench over 10 pounds. It's probably not going to inflict much damage. If, however, I lie about you, I tell one person, they tell one person who tells another person, tells another person, everybody's telling a bunch of other people, I can ruin your reputation. And that is what makes gossip so sensationally nasty. Number three, gossip leaves a wide trail of destruction. Number four, gossip erodes trust and destroys morale. When you gossip inside of the church, let me tell you something, nobody is going to confide in you. Let's move it out of the church realm and into your home. Do you do some gossiping? Well, sure, we talk about people, but it's just in the van. Hold on. What are the kids picking up? What you're laying down, and that is you can't be trusted. You find out something that is perhaps damaging to somebody, you're willing to share it. Let me tell you, they get that. It creates an environment of a suspicion. Is you going to talk about me? Is he going to share this? What is that person? Who are they talking to on the phone? Hey, what's that email all about? Who are you texting? Could it be that there's an environment of suspicion in your home, maybe in your church, because there's been a whole lot of tail-bearing number six-way gossip is nasty. It ruins hard-won reputation. If it's a big deal to have a name that is blameless, somebody comes along and tries to lay some blame on it, tearing down the reputation. That makes gossip a really nasty sin, because having a good reputation, it's not just about Nobody thinks anything ill of me, but it's my Christian testimony. When somebody gossips against another Christian, it tears down their testimony. Gossip makes the body of Christ look like the body of Antichrist. Number eight, gossip exhausts the energies we can devote to positive endeavors like, you know, building up. Number nine, gossip discredits the gospel in the eyes of the world. Let me see this person who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ says nasty things about other people. Hmm. Yeah, I think I want to join that club. Not. And finally, gossip robs our Lord of the church he deserves. What an ugly institution we become when we disfigure ourselves by gossiping. How do you stop somebody from gossiping to you? Number one from Dan, ask, why are you telling me this? Heck, can put the kibosh on gossip real quick. Ask, what's the difference between what you're telling me and gossip? Oh, I could never ask that. Hold on. Have you forgotten the nastiness of the sin of gossip? Ask, how is your telling me that going to help us love God and our brothers better and knit us closer together as a church family? Oh, I know what you're thinking. That would be so awkward. Hold on. This person is about to commit a grievous sin, and so are you. Why wouldn't we ask a question that would pull somebody up short and help them go, oh, you know what? You're right. 
ask, now that you've told me that, what are you going to do about it? Number five, ask, now that you've told me that, you've morally obligated me to make sure you talk to fill-in-the-blank about this. So how long do you need so I can know when this becomes a sin that I'll need to confront it in you? That seems awfully mean. Well, if it's delivered meanly, but if it's delivered lovingly, it's loving. The Christian way to defeat gossip coming from our lips is not merely by esteeming ourselves as less than others. That is most assuredly a part. We do need to think of others as better than ourselves because we genuinely know how sinful we are, but don't Stay there. This is the beauty of the gospel. We esteem ourselves as less than everybody else, and yet totally beloved by God. Therefore, who cares what the servants think about me? The king says, I am his beloved. Are you want to gossip? Don't forget the gospel. You are a big, bad, terrible, awful sinner, and Jesus is a big, wonderful, amazing Savior who loves you despite your sin. That will put the kibosh on gossip. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.